Okay, amazing. All right, so uh, Paul Merton, thank you so much for uh, coming on Chaplain Talks. How are you doing? Very well, very well. Um, and uh, thrilled to have this uh, opportunity to talk about Charlie. Uh, <laughs> when I was growing up, um, and, and, you know, I was born in 1957, so when in the sort of like... Uh, when I started getting into silent comedy, none of my school friends were remotely interested. So it's been years. <laughs> all, the, all the knowledge and opinions I've acquired over the years can be used in a, in a, in a, a situation like this, because most of the time people were more interested in David Bowie <laughs> at the time. Yeah, of course. I was going to say, what's so funny is, uh, on my social media accounts, I kind of put out there, like, well, who would you like to see on the show? And so many people were writing, Paul Merton, you need to get Paul Merton on. You need to get Paul Oh, well, that's good. That's uh, good to know. And it's good to know. Me, obviously, growing up in Switzerland uh, and going to school in England as well. When I was in school, I used to actually see you on TV. So I knew from TV and I knew who you oh, were. Oh, right. Okay. Um, but then I Googled Paul Merton, Charlie Chaplin, because I was like, there's got to be something to it. And just so much stuff came up. <laughs> oh, really? And I was really pleasantly surprised. And I saw that you unveiled the, the plaque. On Brixton Road. Oh yes, that's right. Yes, that was about four or five years ago now. Yes, that was a, a, a marvelous uh, moment to sort of. It, it's it's strange because you you know when you're growing up, uh, working class boy as I was, you you and you see them. My very first kind of introduction to Charlie Chaplin was I think it may be one of those compilation films like when comedy was king sort of thing that okay. they used to Robert Youngson put together. And I have a vague memory of being very young and my grandfather pointed to the TV screen at a, a Chaplin clip, probably a Keystone clip, and saying, oh, that, that, he was the funniest man in the world. And, and uh, when somebody's introduced to you by that introduction, and I remember sort of looking at it and maybe not quite getting it at the time or whatever, because yeah. those early Keystone films are, are very important in his career, but they're not, you know, they're, 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 they're not the, the first place to start necessarily. Yeah. Um, and the idea that one day I would be associated with him just by opening a plaque where somewhere he used to live was uh, at the age of 12, 13, 14. I, that would have been mind boggling. I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have thought such thing was possible because he was or they was born in the same part, roughly the same part of London as I was. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it just seems so far away, you know, both historically and geographically. I mean, all oh, he's making true. all his films in Hollywood. So just to be part of him and to be doing part of this really is that the 12 year old version of me wouldn't quite believe it. <laughs> That's great. So what, what do you think kind of attracted you to silent films in the first place then? What, 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 when did you realize that you actually really enjoyed watching them? I think I suppose there was a program shown here in England in 1968, I think called the golden silence hosted by a guy called Michael Benteen, who okay. was part of the original goon show. And, uh, that was where we I first started to see it sort of presented because before that Bob Monkhouse had a series called Mad Movies, but they tended to be a lot of Senate stuff uh, and jokey kind of vocal narrations, which used was, used to be the style of how you would present these things. So I think people felt well, it's silent, so we need to put words on it, which is not what the Golden Silence did. They presented it with with good sort of uh, uh, trad jazz music and stuff. Um, so that's when I really started to get into it. And, and just the, the, the realisation, I saw uh, Charlie's The Circus when it was re-released around mm -hmm. about 1971, maybe mm -hmm. something like that. Uh, and, and just the whole idea of how great a comedy film could still be, even though it had been made 50 years before, as in that time when I'd seen The, the, the Circus. And the, the, 
the, the brilliance of the comedians. I mean, you know, uh, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, Lauren Hardy, all made brilliant silent films. And the best of them still survive absolutely wonderfully. I mean, I, I have a, we showed um, Easy Street on a, on a BBC programme a few years ago now, uh, called, I can't remember what it was called now, The Silent Clowns, maybe it was called. Yes. Um, and uh, that got a tremendous response. Yeah, and I, I, I love a love of history and the fact there are some people that say, oh, comedy dates, you know, comedy, you know, it doesn't last. Well, it, the best of it does. Um, satirical, topical comedy, not necessarily because you need to know about the, the, the news around it at the time. But the best of Charlie Chaplin, of which there is a hell of a lot, is, is still as brilliant today as it, as it ever was and always will be. And when I've toured um, with uh, Neil Brand and playing the piano and shown silent films to audiences, they are amazed at how well the best of these films stand up because okay. they do. And they still have the same impact today. Then there's something about watching a silent comedy with live music, which beats Trump's or virtually any sound comedy film because you don't miss any laughs. Yeah. It's all there in front of you. You know, it, 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 Marx Brothers' brilliant Groucho lines. If you're laughing at one line, the next line's gone. The timing is different, of course, because it's fixed to words. Yeah. But uh, with the best of the silent films and Charlie's stuff, I mean, it, it's just extraordinary how well it still survived. How, and, and it's it's brilliant. It's sort of, it's such an unusual uh, art form, silent comedy. I, I watch silent drama and I like silent drama, but, you know, a lot of silent films, you could say, well, silent dramatic films, they could be improved by dialogue. Yeah. Not so with the silent comedies. You, there's no point in putting dialogue into them. The advantage of them being silent is you can slightly undercrank, so the action's a little zippier, not not manically fast, but it can be just a little zippier. Yeah. Um, the the fact that people throughout the world could watch this stuff, and as you'll know, you, your, your, your grandfather... By the time, you know, the 1915, 1916, he was the most famous man in the world. Yeah. You could, people, you could see him, you know, just change the title cards into whatever, Russian, Chinese or whatever. Um, and, and it was universally known. And that's, uh, I mean, that's never going to happen again. It can happen with music and it happened with the Beatles. But um, in terms of film comedy, that those really were sort of very special days. And I think also as well that, Given three major comedians of the time, Howard Lloyd, Charlie Chaplin, Buskin, all making films together throughout the 1920s, yeah. um, inspiring each other. The, the, the uh, scene in the gold rush that starts off with Charlie along the ledge yeah. with the bear behind him. And it's kind of slightly inspired by Safety Last and the climb up the exactly. side of the building where Howard Lloyd showed that thrill comedy was really a, a really huge element inside of comedy. And of course, you have the famous tightrope scene in the circus as well. So they were yeah. they were inspiring each other. Um, and I, there's never been another era in film history where three major comedians have been inspiring each other to get better and better. And Charlie, of course, was the leader in this, the pioneer. Um, and I often think that um, Buster Keaton, there's a quote from him saying that he thought that the gold rush was the most perfect motion picture ever made. And I always felt um, that that inspired him to make The General because he went back into history as well, the way that Charlie had. So each of them's inspiring the other one to do really good work. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, that's a great answer. Uh, but it's true. If you think about someone like Buster Keaton, I have obviously I haven't watched as much uh, Buster Keaton as my grandfather's films, but just seeing some of the stunts he, they used to do back then as well, when you see him with a train, there's a whole scene of the train or when the, the is it the building falls down and he's standing in the yes. perfect place and he just goes through the door. It's just exactly. like unbelievable I think what they used to do. I think we've now got to a much more sort of sensible space because there was a time 
in the 60s when um, Buster's films were being rediscovered because it disappeared for a long time where people were trying to sort of create an artificial rivalry between him and uh, and Charlie like you had to like one or the other which was ridiculous <laughs> I mean they, they are both brilliant in their own absolutely. way absolutely um you know it's you, you don't have to choose between uh, Haydn or Mozart you know it's, yeah, yeah. you don't you don't have to like one and denigrate the other one because of that <laughs> yeah. I think we're luck for god we're, we're so fortunate to have both of them and and the fact that um and this is the great thing in the era that we live now in DVDs and Blu-ray and stuff um, is that uh, when I was collecting these films on home movies, I had a copy of The Immigrant and I had a copy of Easy Street on, on 8mm, you know, film about that wide. Yeah. And when I look back on the picture quality then, it was pretty poor. You know, you're projecting it onto, your, onto a sheet on your wall. <laughs> but it was the only way you could see these films. Now, I mean, the extraordinary stuff that the British Film Institute's done with the mutual films yeah. and, the, and the Chaplin uh you know the, the you know the 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 Chaplin uh, uh, business that is I can't think of what the better word is but you know you re, you re-released all this all the silent sound films in such brilliant quality I mean it's just astonishing how they look now and they they they, they probably look better now than they would have done if you'd seen them three months after they were first released yeah. because as, as a film goes through a projector it picks up dirt exactly. and debris and tram lines and stuff <laughs> it's like watching the rushes the day after they were filmed so that is an extraordinary. Uh, incredible progress in the fact that these these films look as good as they do they look absolutely amazing yeah yeah no i know they spend a lot of time restoring them they're in 4k yes. now they're in 4k which is insane it's really it's re- I, I watched um i watched city lights recently on yes i think it was on criterion i can't remember it's a criterion yes. collection anyway it was the best quality i've ever seen i know it, it, it is you know it's it sort of um Gone are the days now where when we used to see these silent films, we would assume that because the film was old, that they would they would automatically not look good. That was part of it. You know, it was like uh, if you were listening to a 1912 recording on a on a cylinder disc, you expected it to sound ropey because of when it was made. So you expected a film to not look good because of when it was made. But yeah, I mean, the. The, the new version of the kid that's out as well is it's just astonishing yeah. it, it it really is and uh, in a way you could never have predicted you know 40 or 50 years ago when i started collecting these films because then the 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 general knowledge about them was well they they will deteriorate as time goes by mm-hmm. and not the case brilliantly <laughs> yeah funny that you brought up the beatles before because you've said mm. I, I read a quote by you saying that chaplin is as important to early cinema as the beatles were to pop so why do you think that? Oh is? yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And and actually, you know, it's sort of you could also draw a comparison, another comparison between them, in that their their growth from you know from Charlie making those first Keystone films in 1914 through to let's say the kid. I mean, you could stop at Shoulder Arms, but let's say the kid, six years. That sort of kind of the Beatles from Love Me Do through to Sergeant Pepper, <laughs> Abbey Road. I mean, it's you know the 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 creative growth is extraordinary. And the fact that um, uh, your grandfather was doing it himself rather than having three other guys with him, you know, yeah. is also extraordinary. I think, yeah, I mean, uh, there is one thing that there is there is one sad aspect to the to the Chaplin legacy, and that fact is that the that people anybody can put out a collection of those Keystone films and yes. they put them out in such a dreadful quality and with dreadful and the, music the British, as well. Yeah, oh, just, oh, just really yeah, heartbreaking. Um, and there's nothing anybody can do about it because of all that copyright and stuff. Mm. The British Film Institute, anybody watching this who's interested in early Chaplin, get the British Film Institute collection because that's spot on. It's okay. really good. 
But you, you'll get these other discs that still sell for like 20 quid or something, and they're just awful. They really are. I can't think of another major artist whose work is so badly represented uh, in the, you know, and it's, it's nobody's fault because those films don't belong to anybody anymore and you can't stop them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, when you look at those early Keystone films, you, you remember that they were made very quickly. They were made at a time when cinema was was really becoming the medium and you'd go to the cinema maybe three or four times a week and you expect to see a different set of films every time so <laughs> exactly. the films he was making then you know knock them off in three or four days you know they're not they're, they're not great entertainment they're, they're historically very very interesting but you need to start at something like the mutual films you know or indeed the a dog's life or the kid or, or I watched the woman in Paris the other day. Yeah. I haven't seen that for, for quite a long time. He's dramatic film. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. It really is. It really is superb. It's all, you know, he, he, he could do nothing wrong in those days in the 1920s. You know, if it, uh, if it marketed a soft drink, it would be the best soft drink that anyone had ever tasted. If it, if it made a salad, it would be the, the greenest, freshest, most vitamin filled salad, you know? And, um, so there's a great deal to explore there. Anybody who's watching this who doesn't know where to start with Charlie, I mean, probably City Lights is a, is a pretty good start. It is. But, you 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 know, or The Kid or, or uh, The Gold Rush or whatever. There's lots of those films. But tr- avoid, if you're going to get the Keystone stuff, get the BFI stuff okay. um, because that's the only ones that's worth watching. The rest of them are very disappointing because the, the picture quality. And as you say, and one of the the music is just just 1930s jazz records. And one of them has even got an announcement of somebody saying, are you ready, everybody? Let's dance. It's, it's got nothing to do with the film. It's uh, God, that's terrible. So, yeah, so that word of warning aside, I mean, there is such a treasure trove of stuff to be discovered by people who haven't delved deeply into it. You've used elements of silent cinema, sort of in your stand-up shows, by by changing music to to scenes. I, I read. Oh that yes, no, there was. Yeah, that's not not the stand-up shows, but when I was okay. touring with Neil Brand, who's who's done a lot of documentaries uh, recently on the BBC about music, musicals and music and television and stuff. Um, it's you can show a silent film, and depending on how the music is played, it can change the experience of the film. Yeah. It can be more wistful it can be a bit more hard-edged it can be a bit bitter it can be a bit more um, romantic there is because in a skilled in the hands of a skilled practitioner like neil it's really amazing because the film doesn't isn't the film is obviously static not static but the film is fixed it's set it can't change the film can't change but the accompaniment can change it and that changes the nature of the film i made a, a very short film uh, about 20 years ago, called The Suicidal Dog. And we did a silent okay. version of it, which Neil, I think a 10-minute film. Okay. So I showed that occasionally. And uh, Neil could change the, what the film was about uh, and, and, and the relationships <laughs> between the people by what he played. Yeah. And, and that is, um, somebody once coined the phrase live cinema uh, because we're so, because a film, we know so used to be, the film is that, that is the film. Unless mm-hmm. you re-edit the film, that is the film. But actually the experience it can change uh, due to how you play the music. Yeah, absolutely. The reason why my grandfather was so successful as well was because he was the first person to realize that the music was just as important as what was on screen. So if there was a sad scene, you needed sad music. You couldn't just have a piano player playing slapstick music the whole way through. I don't know if it's true, but he was the first. I mean, Mm -hmm. he certainly... um... If you look at something like D.W. Griffith's film, The Birth of a Nation, which yeah. is a horribly racist picture. Okay. Uh, it was, I mean, it was it's dreadful, but they sort of, 
they would have um, uh, large orchestras playing Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries during the Ku Klux Klan's uh, okay. uh, race to save somebody. I mean, just, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't be more <laughs> awful, really. Okay, but they did always realise the importance of music. But I think uh, he was certainly the first to, um, I don't think there was anybody else. There was no other filmmaker that was composing their own music for their That's film. True. So City Lights was the first that he did. Um, that's, I mean, that is the extraordinary sort of measure of how brilliant this man was, that um, he was right, that sort of sound films, once he starts talking, he said once, well, once I start talking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like any other comedian, which is, I mean, he was going to be better than that. But his special skill in, in pantomime, uh, in being able to convey emotions, that famous moment in the, in the Tramp where we see him walk away from the screen mm-hmm. and how he sort of is downhearted. And then he looks up as if hearing birdsong or just being aware of nature and kicks up his heels. And, 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 and you know, just seen from the back, we read his emotion. And in 1915, that was extraordinary to in, in what was just considered really black and white images on a bedsheet yeah. shown in Nickelodeons, that somebody on screen with their back to you without seeing their face can tell you how they're feeling. So... He was, of course, you know, absolute genius at that. But then he's genius also as well. So Sound Films comes in. So he says, OK, I'll write the music for the soundtrack of the film. I mean, <laughs> n- nobody else was doing that or even thought or even thought that they could do it. Um, but he, you know, he loved the creative challenge. Yeah. And, uh, of course, it's one of the, the, the greatest films ever made and, and released um, two or three years into the when Sound had... Uh, made silent cinema redundant as far as sort of people wanting to go and see the latest release, you know? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And he, well, I think his thing as well is that he didn't want to give the tramp a voice. He's like, Mm. he's gone all that whole time. He didn't want to give him a voice, which was a right call, I guess, in the end. Oh, totally. (laughs) Absolutely. Because his voice is not, I mean, with Lolan, with Lolan Hardy, their voices kind of fitted their characters in a way that uh, Buster's voice and Charlie's voice. I mean, what, what sort of, voice would the tramp have you know uh but i think that um it is very hard to sort of pick the greatest chaplin film you just have to go with what your favorite is you, you know there's so many different factors i was gonna involved. i was gonna ask you that <laughs> well i watched the great dictator again i hadn't seen it for a long time um that is the most astonishing film that is the moment I mean, you've got all the great silent visual gags early on where you've got the venus de milo statue that's doing a nazi salute mm-hmm. Um, you've got the sequence with the huge globe of the world, yeah. which is like a big balloon. Um, you've got the bit where he's trying to upstage Napoleone, the Mussolini character in chairs. So they're trying to get <laughs> higher and higher and all that <laughs> stuff, which is absolutely brilliant. But there's the speech at the end, which has always divided people. But I think that speech at the end where, and I think that's the tramp's voice, although it's also Charlie's voice, of course, but it, it's, it, it's, if the tramp character is going to say something, he might as well say that, you know, he, he can not say anything more profound yeah. or more relevant than just how, uh, you know, the this, this stupidity of war and how um, ordinary soldiers are manipulated by leaders to go out and fight the wars for them. And although it, got, it has been criticised by people, I just think there is no other film that attempts to do what he does at the end of that film. And... Um, I think he pulls it off. And I think certainly when you watch the film, when there's wars, as there's always a war going on somewhere, um, it, it's extraordinarily relevant. And, and I, I, I love it for that. I, I love it for its passion. I love it for its sort of, um, okay, I, I'm going to stop 
the film. I'm going to I'm going to talk to you directly because this is the platform I've got, and I'm yeah. going to say this. I, 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 it's just astonishing. There, there, no other film attempts to do anything like that. And for that, for me, um, although I, there are other films I'll always be very fond of, but I think that is a real coup at the end of that film. That that yeah. speech is just extraordinary, and uh, I find it emotional whenever I see it. Uh, it has an emotional effect on me, and. I just, it's such a brave, bold, extraordinary step to take. And, mm. it, and, he, and he pulls it off. I think it's just absolutely brilliant. So that would be, um, that would be my favourite film, yeah. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be a, an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate, only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then, in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie, they do not fulfill that promise, they never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason. A world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, 
In the name of democracy, let us all unite! It was so bold of him to even just speak out at a time where people were quite supportive. Not maybe he's quite supportive of the Nazis, but I know eventually they well they didn't want to they didn't want to affect uh, they, they they really want to affect film sales in Germany. Yeah, you know they didn't want to upset. Uh, you know, there's a lot of appeasement going on at the time. You know, the British government. You know, sort of uh, there's a quote from Winston Churchill. There's something like the policy of appeasement is is essentially you, you want to keep feeding the tiger, hoping that he'll eat you last. <laughs> You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, so but your grandfather was sorry to cut it. It was, yeah. was always made bold choices, shoulder arms. Yeah, no, a, a film about the first world war. The immigrant while the world war was still going on. Yeah. Um and I've just been reading the book that just about that period, and everybody was saying to him, Well, this is mad, you don't want to you know, don't do this, but it turned out to be a huge, massive success, you know. So mm. it's um he was always one for taking a creative risk when he believed that he was right yeah i mean it came back to bite him in the end because he got blacklisted from america i guess but well yes because <laughs> the, the 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 whole political thing shifted didn't it so yeah. suddenly if you you know when russia was america's ally in the second world war and you could address a meeting i think he did a radio broadcast where he says hello comrades or dear comrades or something yeah, 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 exactly. to russia and uh, that was used against him but then a lot of people were as america shifted drastically to the to the right there was a lot of people whose careers were ruined and uh um he was you know the way that america sort of treated him or the you know the american establishment was shameful and uh i was just reading this book uh just talking about the early days around about shoulder arms the amount of money that he raised during the uh the bond the war bonds yeah. thing, you know millions upon millions of dollars uh you couldn't question his patriotism towards america um so it was very it was a strange time it was a very strange time and uh i suppose but for him though from what i understand and looking at it and a lot of the old hollywood had gone by the early 50s um so you know fair douglas fairbanks his good friend had, had gone yeah. um the whole it was a, the industry had changed a great deal um so maybe i don't know how how bad he felt about leaving there in the end you might know more about it than i did i mean obviously it was a real um you know he managed to get all his money out of america and stuff and there was any re that, that kind of thing in 1972 where they invited him back for the special oscar and stuff but uh it, i mean what is what a strange thing what a strange yeah. thing to happen to you considering how popular you had been to be uh because you know, the politics had shifted so much that said now instead of being a Suddenly, it was a bad thing to be a liberal. It was a bad thing to be a, um, a, a citizen of the world, as he called himself. Yes. You know, yeah, completely. My, um, yeah, my dad always said that he was very, he was extremely hurt by that whole situation. Was he? Yeah, very, yeah. very hurt, and he didn't like talking about it much or anything. You know, he said on a couple of occasions that if he'd stayed in England, he would have been, you know, he would have been a good musical, not a good, yeah. he would have been a brilliant musical actor. Um, but he wouldn't have been able to get into films necessarily. And America, um, for all its faults, doesn't really have a class system in, in, in you know, well, it does, I suppose it does. There are various ways that different people are treated. But over there, he, it's like, what can you do? And uh, it doesn't matter where you're from necessarily. That's the American dream anyway. Mm. Um, and so he, I mean, he owed everything initially to America through the, the, you know, the whole film career, which he had a chance. So I can see why he was, you know, 
very fond of America. And I, I, I hear that what you're saying about him being hurt by that. Of course, I suppose he would have been. Yes. So it was a great thing to be able to. It's a happy ending to a very sad latter part of his life, I suppose. Yeah. My my dad says there's three. He always explains to people that, he, that my grandfather had three chapters in his life. He had mm-hmm. the, the, the growing up in London, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the very hard upbringing. Then you had the second part of his life, which was America. Mm-hmm. And then the third part, which was his exile in Switzerland. Yes. But yes. he said as bad as everything was before that. And he got, you know, he moved to Switzerland and everything. He ended up being so happy uh, because mm. he had his family, he had his wife. He apparently he was just really happy being there. Oh, well, that's fantastic to hear. You know, yeah. that is fantastic to hear. And also, uh, he lived long enough to, um, uh, you know, write music for the other films that he hadn't written music exactly. for, like The Kid and, and Shoulder Arms, etc. Um, and um, able to see the, the revival of his films as well in the early 70s. I think I, I saw Modern Times at a cinema in, in, in London around about 73 or something like oh, that. Really? And I was just, okay. I was just so excited to be able to do that. So yeah, so he did see um, a revival, didn't he? And, and he was, and he was, yeah, and I've, I, I count in Hong Kong I've watched in the last year or so. And I, I think that's not a, it's not a bad film at all. I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's a Charlie Chaplin film. And so it, it came in for rather harsh criticism mm-hmm. because um, it, it wasn't like another, any other Charlie Chaplin film. You know, it's a bit, I suppose his companion piece is a woman in Paris in the sense that exactly. it's sort of it's a film that he's not in yeah um that has a very strong female lead and sophia lorraine and i think is absolutely fantastic i mean she, she's wonderful um marlon brando we know that there was tri- you know difficulties with him <laughs> but actually um it, it's a it's a pretty good film it's not it's by no means a disaster uh and that's one of the things i often say to people who don't know anything about charlie chaplin first of all you, you mentioned the song Smile to Them, which a lot of people know, and you say it's written by Charlie Chaplin, and they can't believe it. But also the uh, the title song to Account is from Hong Kong, yeah. uh, This Is My Song, this is my song um, yeah. was a hit. was a hit for both Petula Clark and Harry Seacombe in this country in the same year that Sgt. Pepper was released. So, I mean, it's, oh, is it the same year? I didn't think of it like 67. that. 1967. Wow. You know, that, that is longevity for you, <laughs> to have a hit record. <laughs> In the era of the psychedelic era of the Beatles, they have a number. I'm not if it got to number one or number two, but certainly there were the Harry Seacon version and Petula Clark, two versions of the same song with both hits. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because uh, as a child growing up, uh, for me, I knew that my granddad had quite, he, I knew he had quite the interesting life. Mm. Uh, but by doing this podcast, I've learned so much about his career, um, mm-hmm. about how he was as a man and how difficult actually he probably was to work with as well is there mm-hmm. anything as a chaplain fan yourself is there anything that you're quite surprised or found interesting about his life or or career well i think that thing about being difficult at, at times i think if you're if you're seeking perfection um then you get quite annoyed if you don't get there you know and it's sort of you have to um I was just reading the quote the other day, just saying um, one of the last interviews he did with Richard Merriman, I think it is, late 60s, where he says, well, uh, uh, you know, if I have anything, it's about the desire to get it right. Uh, and um, people who are watching this will know, will know probably that he used to rehearse on, on you know, uh, his uh, films by filming them and, and doing take after take after take. But that's about seeking some kind of perfection or some bit where it's absolutely right. And... Yeah, I mean, when you're working at that level of creativity, 
it can be annoying if somebody's <laughs> not doing their job properly. Yeah. You know, it's uh, not that I've ever reached his heights, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you, you want, you want it to be as good as it can be. And the proof of that, of the pudding in that particular strategy is that these films still work. You know, they're not, you know, they're not museum pieces. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I've seen anything. There was, there is a view uh, because of, as you say, he was bitter about uh, the exile from America. And when he wrote his autobiography, that was uh, a few years after he, he, he had gone through that. Um, and the, the, the first part of the biography is always hugely praised. And the second part is sometimes criticised because he doesn't um, mention people like Stan Laurel, who exactly. he toured with in America and stuff. But, but nobody ever says that, um, well, first of all, when I was writing a book about silent comedy a long time ago, I came across a, a Peter Bogdanovich interview where he interviewed Leo McCary, who did a lot of the early Lauren Hardy silent shorts. Okay. And Leo McCary talks about getting a letter from Charlie Chaplin praising him on the Laurel and Hardy silent shorts, saying how good they were. Okay. Um, in a, the Laurel and Hardy biography written in the mid fifties, Stan Laurel attacks the speech at the end of the great dictator saying it, it's, it's lousy. Um, so, <laughs> Charlie would be aware of these things, no doubt. Uh, he would be interested in reading the biography of Stan Laurel, perhaps. So nobody ever really, I've never seen anybody saying that perhaps he felt slighted, perhaps he felt angry about Stan saying, well, yeah. you know, I, the, the film's lousy. Uh, the end of the film is lousy. When particularly if you feel so passionate about it um, and you devote all your time and energy to making something like that, then yeah, you, you would be annoyed. You would be angry. So I think, in many ways, that criticism, oh, he doesn't acknowledge his contemporaries, can be should be seen through the prism of, well, this was a, written by a man who 10 years before, eight years before, had been exiled from America, as you say. Um, so there would be bitterness there, of course. Mm -hmm. um, other comedians, I mean, Buster Keaton said stuff. Uh, I think mean, his politics and Charlie's politics, I think, would be far apart. And Buster said a few anti-Charlie things in the 50s as well. Um, not too strong, but he, he, it's a, I, I, there's a couple of Keaton interviews where he's interviewed just after filming Limelight and nobody talks to him about Limelight. And I always oh, find that odd. That is strange. Um, okay. Yeah. So, it, so, so Charlie's reluctance to talk about other people must be seen through the understanding and the circumstances of when the book was written, I think. Okay. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, I'm mind you. The the scene that Buster Keaton and my grandfather do at the end of yes. Limelight is just, I, I it's one of my favorite scenes that actually that I've seen yes. of my grandfather's. Well, films. can I just say it's a, I, my my heart leaps with joy when you say between Buster and my grandfather. I can't <laughs> quite believe that I'm that I'm talking to somebody who has his DNA. It uh, is extraordinary. Yeah, I mean it is. It's wonderful. Um, and that again was this would be a good place to scotch this room because it occasionally does come up again is that Raymond Rohar, who was Keaton's business manager, who was a bit of a rogue, mm -hmm. did very well in, in, in getting Keaton's films together and making new prints. But he put around the rumour, uh, the completely wrong idea, that Charlie had cut out Buster's best bits from the film, okay. which was, was, was not the case at all. <laughs> okay. Well, firstly, it's not a film about a pianist. And I heard a story which hasn't been so uh, well put around um, so it's not the case. Charlie didn't cut Buster's best stuff at all. He, he didn't do it. And if you look at the film, 
Keaton's performance is very sympathetically edited. A bit when he's playing the piano yeah. and, the, and the music sheets are coming off, it's, it's very sympathetically done. There's no way he's trying to make Buster look lesser than he is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, a film historian uh, acquaintance of mine told me that it, there was uh, somebody who was an eyewitness to that filming of that sequence. And as Buster was doing the bit of falling off the, uh, the, the piano stool, the revolving piano stool, Charlie was beside the camera and he whispered to somebody else. He said, look, you can't teach somebody how to do this. This is just oh, absolutely really? brilliant. It's just innate. So he was a huge fan of Keaton. He didn't sort of try and ruin his performance in the film, you know, but yeah. that was put around by Rohar at the time to boost Buster Keaton, you know, so um, I, I, perhaps I shouldn't have mentioned it because maybe people don't even know the rumour anymore. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a, a rumour kill it, you know. <laughs> but it's not true anyway, you know, but yeah, yeah it's brilliant. It is, it's, it's superb to see the, those those two giants of screen comedy working together in a, in a and also the fact that's great about it is originally they were I think it was scheduled to shoot it over the course of three days but they they ended up rehearsing for about nine or ten did they so they just loved work they must have just loved yeah. working together it must have been a dream it, it must, must have been have a been. dream I, yeah I know that um doesn't he say in his my grandfather say in his autobiography that he heard that Buster Keaton was going through divorce at the time or something. So he insisted, he insisted that he gets the role for that part. Well, he said that he was going, he'd heard that Buster was going for a bad time. Yeah. Uh, he, hadn't, he wasn't divorced at that okay. point. He'd got Buster been married since 19, his last wife successfully, a bit like your grandfather. The okay. last marriage was one that lasted, uh, okay. uh, you know, um, 1941, 42, I think Buster got married. So he was very happily married. Um, but uh, now, what was I going to say? I was going to say something there. Um, yeah, no, I, you know, he says something like he. I think when uh, they meet up, Charlie says, uh, "You know, well, um, what have you, you know, been doing?" And Charlie says something derogatory about television, and Buster says, "Oh, I've been doing television," <laughs> something like that. But uh, I, again, this hasn't been in any of the books. But I would imagine that Sunset Boulevard, the film 1950, Bond Sunset Boulevard, which Buster appears in very briefly, yeah. and in which Gloria Swanson does an impression of Charlie Chaplin. Um, I would have thought Charlie would have been aware of that film, certainly would have been aware of it. So he may have been aware of Buster before somebody, I think somebody did suggest it as an idea. Um, and of course he leapt at it because it, he, he was, um, uh, you know, this is a double act. So you, you want to have somebody who's an equal uh, on-screen partner to yourself. Mm. And uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's a glorious moment in the film. Yeah. It, it, it is wonderful. Yeah, no, completely. And uh, I'll tell you, because I'm sure you're dying to know what my favourite film is. <laughs> yes, no, do. Tell me. <laughs> no, uh, Monsieur Verdu. Ah. That's my favourite, because yeah. it's, so, it's kind of dark, um, and it's so it's so different to everything else he's done that, that I just, uh, I love yeah. it. I find well, it. that's interesting you say that. That's, that's, that's really interesting, because uh, I, I've, uh, I've been watching his films in sequence, uh, Charlie's films in sequence, amongst other films. So I got as far as the Great Dictator. So the other day, I was, I was two days ago, I was considering Monsieur, Monsieur Verdoux. Um, so I haven't seen it for a long while, but I, I, that's going to be coming up soon. From what I remember of it, mm -hmm. in many respects, it may be his finest acting performance because the character ages over a number of years, and he conveys the aging of that character with with a minimum of makeup. It's all about sort of like how he stands, yeah, you know, yeah, just yeah. sort of slightly older. And it's, it's, it is, uh, oh, it's interesting. You think that's his favorite, that's your favorite. That's good. Um, Cause it has sort of been, as you know, when it was first released, it got a very sort of uh, patchy kind yeah, of appreciation yeah, because it was so different. 
um, and it's not what you expect from a Charlie Chaplin film. And, and it was, you know, that 30 years of the tramp and now he's doing something totally different. Um, yeah, I, I can't wait to get back to that, actually, because, yeah, I think you're I think that's not a that's not a bad decision. That's not a bad decision. <laughs> on your part. Yeah, there's also a great speech in it as well uh, towards the end. Um, yes, as well. So, yes. Uh, the thing about uh, nuclear weapons, exactly. numbers sanctify. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, no, I, I love that film. And uh, as well, I read that you, as a kid, you went to the circus quite a lot. Would you say that? Yes. Because my dad went to the circus a lot as a child as well. Loves it. Yes. To this day, he has his own circus, actually. And uh, so what do you, do you think that was sort of what paved your career, so to speak? Oh, totally. Comedy? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Um I used to, my parents used to take me to church and uh, around, you know, so I, I went to a, a building indoors where there was lots of people and there was still just the last vestiges of the Latin mass. So I'm as a small child, four-year-old, you know, don't really know what's going on. Mm. It's all a bit boring to me as a four-year-old. Then I go to the circus, another indoor building full of people. And when the clowns came out and created this, and this was at Olympia, I was called Olympia when, after the Second World War, this would so I went up probably about 62, something like that, 1963. After the Second World War, circuses were very, very popular in Britain for a long time. And so there was there was well over a thousand people in this huge uh, arena. And just the sound of the clown's laughter, um, <laughs> okay. the create the, the the compared to church, you know, it was uh, it, it was extraordinary. You know, when they they it was all the tricks with like, you know, the a bucket of water comes out, it's thrown over one of the clowns. Then another bucket is produced and it's thrown towards the audience, but it's got confetti in it instead of water. <laughs> and the front row is all going like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the car that comes out and the doors fall off and there's a sort of backfire thing or or somebody uh, lasso somebody else with a, a string of sausages. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I was just, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't get over the fact that adults were behaving like that, first of all, because... <laughs> You know, adults don't normally behave like that. Yeah. They don't dress themselves up. They don't paint their faces. They don't have Coco the Clown, I think, might have been involved. He was a very famous Russian clown yeah, of the yeah. day. And he had a wig, sort of hair that went up at the sides like this when he pressed a bulb in his pocket and he went up like that. Um, I bought it. My, I persuaded my mother to buy me a clown mask, which was <laughs> made of sharp plastic. So it was all oh, cutting it. So I wore it at home. And the, and the cuts, you know, making my face sore, but... Uh, I'm sure there's a psychological depth to this, the clown mask that hurts. But, I, you know, I just loved it. You looked in the mirror and it wasn't you. It was somebody else. Yeah. And, and I just, at that moment, at that moment of seeing these clowns laugh, making people laugh, I wanted to be part of what they did. If Even if it was just bringing a chair out to put down for one of them or to take away a bucket or, or, or just I wanted to be part of the whole activity that created Funny. this incredible response in people. And it was from that moment on. Um, if I hadn't have become successful as a comedy performer, uh, I might have become a director of comedy because a couple of times I've directed stage shows or directed a film. I, I loved it. I loved doing that. I loved sort of um, stepping back from you know away from being in front of the camera or on the stage and and helping to shape something or encouraging a performance this way or that. And so I, I, that, that was fascinating to do that. Uh, but yes, it was the clowns. It, it, it was just that was that one moment where I was. I, I left that circus a different boy from the one that had entered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's nice. Yeah, my dad absolutely 
loves the circus. He's, it's ingrained in him. Yes. He, he travels the world. Which, just sorry, to see which, one, which, which one of the children is your dad? Eugene. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's I know. the middle yeah. child. First one born in Switzerland. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And did he still live there in the house? No. So, so he lived up in, in, he lived in the house right up until pretty much it came a museum up until right, a few yes. years before they started building. Um, so now, yeah. So now it's obviously the museum, which is doing really, really well. I think it just won an award for best museum in Europe or something. So, oh, right. so it's, it's doing really, really well. Um, so yeah, you have to go and visit at some point. Oh, I will. No, I, I will. I absolutely, I'd, I'd love to, because that'd be just the sort of thing. Um, I, I would probably just stand, I'd just stand there and just try and soak up the atmosphere <laughs> of it. I mean, I just, it would be astonishing to do that. Um, yeah. and I will, I, I will. It's always, always, always been on my list to do. Um, but uh, yeah, for some reason I'd never got around to it. But now, but as soon as as soon as it's safe to travel, yeah. I shall be there. Okay, good. I shall be there. And last question, quickly: um, mm. How would you describe Charlie Chaplin to a younger audience? Let's say a child that's never seen his films. Oh, uh, he's five foot five. <laughs> <laughs> Small man. Small man, um, but not considered over not considered overly small for the for his time. I don't know. I mean, it's sort of. Um, I think you just. I, I I think you just have to show him, don't you? You have to show him in the. Um, maybe I, I talked about the Keystone films earlier, not not being particularly um, his best work, because that you know they're not. But they were that. But perhaps the most interesting film in the Keystone. Uh, collection is uh, the, the first one that we see him as in as the tramp kid auto races at venice yeah because that has i mean a the print quality is just astonishingly good b it's about seven minutes long um so it doesn't sort of it, it doesn't really have a plot it's just about a man who's uh, the tramp getting in the way of a movie camera but what's also really interesting is the documentary feel to it is because at this point, nobody had ever seen the tramp on screen in uh, amongst all the spectators there. So they're just looking at him like, well, you know, who's that bloke? Uh, there's no, no recognition at all. As it goes along, as the camera pans along a row of spectators, one woman has a, has a uh, piece of paper in front of her face yeah. who clearly doesn't want to be photographed. <laughs> we don't know why. <laughs> I'd love to know why. Is she, is she taking the day off work? Is she sitting next to somebody she shouldn't be sitting yeah, yeah. next to? <laughs> I, I don't know. You know? So funny, yeah. um, but that is the most extraordinary seven-minute film. So it's an introduction to Chun. It still works quite well, actually, because the joke is very simple. Um, although the uh, relationship between him and the director, Henry Lehrman, um, was quite fraught. And you can see a couple of times when the Henry Lehrman pushes him over. It's not a, it's not a jokey push. It's a it's, real really push. It. It's a push of anger. Um, and Charlie gets up and, and, and it's sort of, you know, he, you can see him being angry in return. But um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, how would you explain? I think you just sort of, I, I think you just have to show him, you know, you have, to, you, you have to sort of sit down and show him because kids have always, you know, these early fans were children, weren't they? You know, because mm. kids love adults being uh, anarchic. Because it's, it, it turns around the norm, a bit like the clowns thing, you know. We, as young children, we expect adults to say, now eat that. No, you can't go out, it's raining. It's time to go to bed. Yeah, yeah. And all the rules and all that sort of stuff. And suddenly here's a guy who's going around kicking people up the arse with, <laughs> <laughs> with, with very little provocation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's, um, 
yeah, I, I, it's, I wish we could see more of the stuff on TV, but, uh, um, you know, it's, we, 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 they don't do it for some reason, but, uh, I, I think that, uh, yeah, it just, anybody who's been watching this, who hasn't, who's not into, who has not seen many Chaplin stuff, I think we've recommended enough for them to, to get into it because, um, Certainly at home, and in these days of bigger screens that people have at home in their TVs and stuff, flatter mm-hmm. screens, and you you're getting the you're giving the picture quality a chance to work. But uh, no, I mean it's it's one of the great. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's it's he's probably you know he's probably the greatest film comedian of all time. I can't think of anybody else that that, that is better or 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 sustained for so long or, or took so many creative risks and chances. And actually. Mm-hmm changed pioneered what we expected film comedy to be from you know basically you know kicking people or, you know you know like the keystone films are full of uh, uh loud noises which you can't hear people firing guns and you know and stuff and explosions <laughs> and things but he took it from that within the space of a few years uh into a, a major extraordinary art form that, that that still continues today and always will so he is uh he's extraordinary he is extraordinary now very well said so uh, thank you so much for coming on, Paul. That's okay. No worries. No, it's really no it's been a great pleasure to uh, talk to you. And I know people are going to be very excited to watch this. So I can't thank you. Enough. Oh, good. Well, Spencer, thank you very much indeed. And uh, thank you for your time as well.